Welcome to the 12th House, the podcast where we explore the intersection of well-being, intuition, spirituality, and intuitive business, and where we pull the curtain back on areas of these industries that are somewhat mysterious, opaque, and confusing, and hopefully do that with a sense of humor (laughs) and irreverence and love at the end of the day. I'm Michelle Palazon, the host and the head witch in charge at Holisticism. Holisticism is the parent company of the 12th house, the cusp, and the North Node, and I'm delighted that you're here today. I know you could be listening to a lot of other things like, oh, I don't know, Olivia Rodrigo's album or The Daily or some true crime podcast, and I'm just delighted that you are taking the time with me and... Wallace and our guest, Kaylin, Kaylin Flynn, MD. It's going to be great. But before I introduce you to Kaylin, I have a couple of light housekeeping things. First, I want to announce the winner of last month's raffle. Last month, we were giving away a one-on-one Akashic Records reading with me, yours truly. And our winner is Kathleen Teresa. Kathleen, I'm going to shoot you a DM. Congratulations. Can't wait to read for you. It's going to be so fun. And if you want to be entered to win June's raffle, all you have to do is subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, and review it. Take a screenshot of your review, send it into the text line in the show notes, and you will be entered to win a holisticism swag pack. It's so cute. You get a bunch of holographic stickers. You can put them on your computer and you get a cute little keychain that says very witchy. It is very adorable. And may the luckiest person win. That's going to be so cute. We're going to be twins because I have the stickers all over my computer and I have the keychain on my keys. So there you go. Ah, Other things to update you on. We are launching a cute little product tomorrow that I think you're going to love. And It's called the four-day intuitive business energetic recalibration. And I created this because, hi, we are in the sixth month of 2021, (laughs) which means we're halfway through. And the summer solstice is coming up. Oh my God. We also have a summer solstice event coming up, which is going to be so fun. But this is a really good time to just like look at what's happened in the last six months, you know, to like kind of take a look at what you wanted in January, what you said you were creating and see if you're in the same place like emotionally, energetically, from a visionary perspective, and just take inventory of where you're at, right? And decide, okay, now that I'm halfway through this year, what do I want to do? What's coming next for me? And I made this with intuitive entrepreneurs in mind. So if you're someone who has a business or is thinking about starting a business or creating something, when I think of an entrepreneur, I really mean like creator, anyone who's who's like birthing something into the world or has birthed something into the world. And it's going to be just so delightful. Oh, shit. It's so good. So every day, it's just four days long. So it's quick and dirty. Every day, you'll get a series of exercises to focus on that should take you less than 10 minutes. And you'll also get a spiritual practice or ritual that goes along with each day. We're walking you through the four pillars of intuitive business, growth, revenue, retention, and impact. And at the end of this four-day experience, you can do it on your own timing. Like You don't need to tune in with me every day. This is completely self-led. At the end of that four-day experience, you should feel really good about what happened in the six months leading up to this. You should have really clear eyes on what happened and how you used your energy and hopefully no judgment towards yourself one way or another. And you should also have a really clear directive of where you want to go next. So we'll talk about future visioning and quantum leaping in this four-day energetic recalibration. And the point 
is to recalibrate, right? Is to notice where your energy is at, decide if you're using the right amount of energy and how you're investing that and to what end. Why? What do you want? What do you really, what do you really, really want to quote the Spice Girls? And are you aligning yourself towards that vision? And if not, great, let's get you aligned. And if so, awesome. Let's double down and see how we can collapse that timeline in a way that's easeful and delightful. It is good. It's really good. And it's really affordable. Sliding scale, $9, $19, or $29. You decide how much you want to spend. Of course, it is self-selecting sliding scale, which means that we have suggested donations based on where you might fall on that sliding scale. And we we believe in the honor code here at Elasticism, and we trust that you will be in integrity in everything that you do, and you will be impeccable with your word because that is the type of person that you are. So you can find that tomorrow. It goes live on Wednesday tomorrow at holisticism.com backslash recalibrate. Mm, I love it. It's so good. All right. And what else have we got? Oh gosh, we've got a lot more happening. (laughs) We have a lot more happening. So the doors to the North Node open officially on June 20th, which is summer solstice. And if you don't know about the North Node, it's our private members community for intuitive entrepreneurs. It is, mm, they are the best people. They're so cool. The North Node is something that I've been running for almost two years, and it's this giant library. Imagine that. Close your eyes. Not if you're driving, but if you're sitting. (laughs) Close your eyes. Imagine this library that has hours and hours of content and classes and reading materials and experiences and challenges where depending on what you need for your business, you can sort of walk through these aisles in this library and find things like how to do candle magic to help your business move forward and herbs to support your immune system and your nervous system as an entrepreneur who's somewhat sometimes stressed and how to do past life regression to understand the patterns that you're in in this life and the decisions that you're making in your business and in what you do. And you have this access to all these things and you just get to like sort of play at this buffet of wisdom and knowledge and magic. It's so fun. We've got all these amazing masterclasses from incredible teachers. I have a lot of my own classes in there and 99% of the content inside the North Node is content that you've never seen at Holisticism before. So you have never had access to it unless you are in the North Node. And if you're someone who like me really likes a plan, I learned that this is something that people with ADD and ADHD really need is like clear directions, which is why I think this is why probably I created the North Node the way that I created it. When you join, you get this success plan and we have created this archetype journey for intuitive entrepreneurs. And so depending on where you fall on that journey, whether you're maybe at the very beginning stages or somewhere in the middle, or maybe like you're pretty far along, there are a set of milestones that you can check off your list. So you know exactly what to hit and what you should be focusing on in any given moment when you're inside the North Node, if you want that kind of support. And if you're more of a free spirit, you don't really love a plan That's awesome. You have this giant library to choose from where you can just like, you know, wander through and delight and look at how to copyright and use spells as you're copywriting, how to be your own spiritual CFO, money is magic, all these just like mm, juicy pieces of wisdom that you stumble along, hopefully right when you need it. And it is my favorite place. Of course, the content is great. 
that the people are the best. And really that's what makes the North Node so, so, so special. And like, I know that I'm just waxing poetic about it and it's not because I'm the mom, trust me. It's because I'm really just like blown away by the fact that these people exist who are inside the North Node, these other North Node members. I think one of the hardest things of having an intuitive business is that there's no rule book and there's no like playbook. At least I'll speak from the eye. My experience has been if I want to run a business that's different than the typical sort of patriarchal capitalistic <laughs> extractionary businesses that like make me squirm and make me feel really dirty and bad. If I want to run a business that's not like them, I basically like have to write my own rules and like forge my own path. And that it can be really tiring <laughs> and really hard because sometimes you just want someone to tell you what the right answer is. It's like sometimes you just want your mom, right? <laughs> and to do it alone is really challenging. But when you have a group of hundreds of people who get you, who are just as magical and witchy and delightful and active and you know, believing in social justice and equity and who understand business, but also understand energy, you have this powerful council of collaborators who can help you make better choices and who can make something. We can't just run business as usual anymore. This is not a time for business as usual. We live in extremely unusual times. We've proven that running business, quote unquote, as usual, the way that Google or Facebook or like BlackRock or whatever, like the way that these giant companies that are sort of like destroying the world have is not the way, right? We can't follow in their footsteps. We have to choose new pathways. And as a solopreneur or a small business owner running business, saying that you're not going to keep business as usual, run business as usual can be really hard because you realize, oh my God, there's a reason that people do do it this way, right? Because it's easier. It's easier to have, I don't know, a company-wide policy that doesn't have empathy at the center of it, right? It's easier to say, well, new moms don't get maternity leave or new moms only get six weeks because like, I don't know, you don't have to take into consideration when something goes wrong or when a mom is going through postpartum depression or the fact that like, I don't know, we're not just here to be like productive little workers on the planet to perpetuate capitalism and make people money. We're actually here to have human experiences. And if we sort of pull at that string, then everything that's problematic about capitalism will start to crumble. And it's easier to pretend like it's working than it is to start to dismantle it. Because if you start to dismantle it, then you have to build a new structure. And how do we do that? <laughs> and I don't say this to be like, don't do it. Just keep running business as usual. I don't think that's the answer. But I do think that I need to be honest with you, like it's not easy. And what makes it easier is having other people who you can bounce your ideas off of, having other people who are deciding not to run business as usual, who are making new choices, who are making different choices, who you can say, okay, how's that working for you? Wait, teach me how to do this. Wait, can you help me with this? And who are game to do it. And that's the coolest thing to me about the North Node. Yeah, like, again, the content is incredible, but the people are incredible. And this is the last time that we're going to open the doors to North Node in a big way, most likely, just because we are at capacity. We really, we can take one more class, one more big class of people, and then we're going to be, we're going to basically shut the doors and we'll only pull people up off the wait list when we have inevitably a member move forward because they've reached the end of their archetypal journey and they're they're ready to graduate. So there will be very a very, very, very limited number of spots available, maybe like once a quarter. 
And yes, we're not doing this to like, I don't know, create a sense of scarcity or anything like that. It's just that here's some inside baseball. When you run a small business, you have to decide some things, right? You have to decide if you want, once you reach a certain point, how to become more scalable. So how do you do things at a bigger scale with more people? So if we have 20,000 members of the North Node and to give them every member the level of care that we give our members now, I would need to hire hundreds of people. And while that might be really cool for another entrepreneur, that is not my path and that is not my journey right now at this point in my life. I love my team. I love having a small team. I love being able to be deeply connected to the people I work with. And I also really love offering them tons of freedom and being able to have business not as usual so that I can create a really safe, supportive space for the people that work with me. And I don't think that I have the skills to do that for hundreds of people right now. And so we can't just keep adding people to the North Node because then we'd have to hire more and more and more people. And I don't think that I have the energy to do all of that well. So maybe that is something that I just need to work on. But I think we also need to be realistic about what types of businesses we're trying to build and what our capacity is. And at this point in my life, it's more important for me to create this really sacred space than it is to like scale our numbers and make like, you know, boatloads of money. It's more important to me to create community that feels safe than it does to scale. And so that's what we're choosing to do. And that might change in the future. Like who knows what will happen, but that is the future for right now, at least for the next year. So if you want to join the North Node, the doors open on June 20th. And if you have any questions about it, you can always ping me. And we have a ton of members right now. So like I said, and they're incredible. They're incredible people. So if you have questions, you can always ask them too. And if you want to go directly to them, you can just pop into the Holisticism Hub and you can search for anyone who has the North Node little tag on them. And you can just ask them about their experience. I'm sure they would love to help you. Or you can post in the Me Holisticism Hub, ask a question and a bunch of them will chime in. They're delightful and so warm and engaging and wonderful and special. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop talking about the North Node now <laughs> because I want to talk about our episode. And oh my God, this intro has been so long. Please don't divorce me. Okay. So that's what I have to offer you. That's the housekeeping stuff. You know, we are a business in order to make this free podcast. We, I do need to run the rest of the business. So thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Let's talk about our guest. Today's guest is Kaylin Flynn. Kaylin is a psychiatrist. She's currently a resident at UCLA. And wow, what a gem of a human being. Kaylin is our one of our visionaries in residence at Holisticism. The VIR program, Visionary in Residence program, is a 12-month incubator slash artist virtual residency that we created for with the purpose of making wellness more accessible and inclusive and by elevating people in the space who are doing just that. So we selected seven different practitioners from all areas of wellness to participate. And Kaylin was one of our visionaries in residence. Kaylin is such a gem. She's actually a member of the North Node before she joined VIR. And Kaylin is working on the intersection of psychedelics, plant medicine, and psychiatry. And you'll hear in this episode exactly how she got into psychiatry, but it 
I'm blown away by her. I'll give you the short answer. She decided to go to med school and become a doctor because she believes in plant medicine so much and the power of psychedelics to help heal us. And the thing that I really love about Kaylin is that she knows her place. <laughs> like, I'm going to just say it candidly. As a white lady, she knows her place when it comes to, at least from where I sit and from the way that she talks about plant medicine. She has studied with indigenous cultures who use plant medicine and who use psychedelics in ceremony. And doesn't she does not claim to be a practitioner of those things, which I really appreciate because that is sometimes something you see is just random white people going and doing ayahuasca and then saying that they now know Mother Aya and they are facilitators of ayahuasca, which I would say... Feels like maybe not. Feels kind of dangerous. <laughs> but we talk about that in this episode. And I just like I'm blown away that that Kaylin experienced psychedelics and plant medicine, that she honored the cultures and honors the cultures that have been stewarding these practices for centuries. And she appreciates them so much and recognized that modern psychiatry is separate and wasn't taking these practices seriously. She decided to bring it upon herself to try and help bridge that gap. And so she went to six years of med, she went to med school. She's like training to be a psychiatrist. The dedication to me just to make, to sort of be that bridge between psychiatry and plant medicine and psychedelics and hopefully integrate these two spaces is like I'm blown away. That that is truly visionary to me to for her to have seen that 6 years ago and decided that. And I just love her perspective and I also love hearing about mental health and spirituality from someone who studies psychiatry. I think you're going to love it too. She's not a regular doctor, she's a cool doctor. And Kaylin is actually teaching a class for holisticism on exploring the food and mood connection nutrition for mental health on June 23rd at 1 p.m. You can join that class. It's at a sliding scale of either $9, $19 or $29. We'd love to have you. And Kaylin is like I said, as someone who is a psychiatrist or sitting to be a psychiatrist who's a resident, I really appreciate her perspective on nutrition and how making these simple changes in the way that we eat, like drinking water, and how we nourish ourselves really impacts our brain and the chemicals that, that our brains are bathing in and how we see the world. And I think that we often hear from nutritionists or dietitians who tell us, of course, that there's there's a connection between what we put into our bodies and our mental well-being. But to hear it from a psychiatrist hits a little different, doesn't hit better or worse, but it's just different. And I really appreciate that. I also appreciate that Kaylin has a background in psychiatry and so many people who teach about nutrition are not informed when it comes to disordered eating. And I think that Kaylin's perspective I really trust her as a practitioner. So if that's something that you want to explore and dive deeper on, I think you should totally join the class. I talk about in this episode, actually, how I changed up my nutrition earlier in the year because I was having some depression and how much of a difference it made. And I'm just constantly reminded that, yes, of course, there are things like 
you know, microdosing and psychedelics and adaptogens and all the fancy things that we do and feel, things that feel out of reach that we can do to help our mental well-being. But there's also so much that we have access to on the day-to-day that can change our mood instantly. And it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be out of touch and it doesn't have to feel out of reach. So I hope that you can join us for class and you can find the link below in our show notes. And I think with that, I'm going to just let, now that I've given you a 20 minute intro, I'm going to let you run with it. And here's Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Yeah, I'm so excited to welcome you and introduce you to the holisticism in the 12th house community because you're one of our visionaries in residence this year. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. (laughs) Well, tell us a little bit about, or tell me now, but but tell our listeners your background and kind of what you're entering VIR with and working on over this next year. Sure. So I am currently in psychiatry residency training, finishing up my third year and about to start a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry, which I'm really excited about. And my huge interest and reason for going into psychiatry was to work with psychedelics. And so now just over the past several months, I feel like increasingly seeing news articles about psychedelic research all the time. So really excited that that's happening and we're getting really close to making these potentially prescription medications. But my angle in psychiatry has been sort of maybe a little bit wider than just the psychedelics. I've been really interested in holistic psychiatry, so taking a whole person approach to mental health care and looking at root causes for why we have mental illness in the first place. And have also spent a good amount of time looking at traditional medicine models for healing and specifically traditional use of psychedelics, which I think we can learn a ton from. Just reading your application for VIR and what you, like, when I was reading about your work, the way that you've described it, and also knowing you now and having worked with you for the last couple of months, hearing your reverence for so many of the indigenous cultures that you've studied with and healers and practitioners that you study at the feet of really, and how much you respect them and honor them and want to not appropriate their culture in any way, but learn from it and understand it for yourself, not to become a practitioner even, but just to, to deepen is really impressive to me. And I feel like so often when someone steps into sort of allopathic medicine, because it is such an entrenched career and it's such a long process, that sort of like curiosity and reverence and maybe sort of like fringe perspective can sort of be like beaten out of them. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. We're really good at beating. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just so impressed that you're, you've been able to hold on to that. So with such conviction and clarity and also hold the fact that like, you're, you're like at, in residency at UCLA, right? I'm starting my fellowship there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like that. Mm-hmm. And that's huge. You're like, you have your feet firmly planted in both worlds. And I just, I think it's so impressive and I can imagine it's also quite challenging to be Mm -hmm. in both and maybe feel like you don't fit in, in either. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Totally. (laughs) I kind of see my role as being like a bridge builder or translator and Mm -hmm. really kind of connect 
the worlds of traditional medicine and allopathic medicine. I think I went through a process of like dismissing allopathic medicine entirely as I was in it. I think there's nothing here. The only thing I care about is learning from people who are like working in a more coherent way where they actually have more of a philosophy of what is going on with healing. And I think I've come to a more balanced perspective of kind of not devaluing my whole training. So I think that there is definitely at least a lot of power in psychiatry and the power that it has over your life if you are involuntarily hospitalized and things like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a light side to that too. There are really good things about allopathic medicine, particularly for emergencies. But yeah, I've been so blessed to get to learn from people who have been working with psychedelics in a traditional medicine way, particularly the Shipibo people in the Peruvian Amazon is who I've studied with the most and their openness to the kind of teaching. I was just curious where exactly you studied with them and what that process was like and how you, I think at one point you told me when we were talking about a review for the cusp that you managed to also get school credit for that time that you were down there, (laughs) which is awesome. (laughs) I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. I got medical school credit for being in the Amazon. It was like probably the best part of my medical school training, spending three months during my fourth year. There, but yeah, I've used ayahuasca in Peru with the Shipibo people. And the first time I went down there was to a center just for two weeks and really wanting to learn and also wanting to be a physician who could speak openly about the psychedelic experience in these visionary states. They knew that I wanted to have this experience in a country where it is legal and being able to sort of come out of the psychedelic closet and speak from personal experience, not just, you know, talking about like the science and what hypothetically it could do, but from how it's touched my life and just wanting to experience it. So I, I just think that there's so much to be learned from people who have been practicing these ways of healing for centuries, at least. And then the kind of practices that have come up from there. I think that to me, at least that's much more interesting than doing like a weekend training course from other doctors who've been learning about this for the past like five, 10 years, even though, I mean, There's things to be learned there too, but I was thinking, okay, if I want to work with psychedelics, I want to learn from people who, who have been doing this. And one of my teachers, his, his father and his father's father have been practicing with ayahuasca medicine. And I just think there's a beauty in being able to learn from people who have that kind of experience with it. I didn't know this, that you got into psychiatry because of psychedelics, mm-hmm. not the other way around, not that you're like studying the brain. You're like, you know what? I think that this could be really helpful. So uh, that feels like the long way around to me. Yeah. yeah. So tell me more about that. Like, why did, why did you pick that? Cause I'm so impressed with that. I have my mentor, Ivy Ross is this incredible artist and designer, which, and she also mm-hmm. is the director of design at Google. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she has gone through all the bureaucracy and the like schmeshma that goes with being at a big company. And she's, she's been able to create amazing changes, but I'm like, man, I so look up and up to you and I would not want to do that. Like, I just want to do it my own way. Mm-hmm. So I'm so curious, like how, yeah. Tell me about that. How that was, that felt like a good decision for you or the right yeah. decision. Yeah. So I, I came initially from a humanities background. So I had studied philosophy and sort of the history of knowledge. Um, so I was in this interdisciplinary program, history, literature, and philosophy, and looking at mm. sort of how ideas emerge in socio 
political, cultural contexts. So that was sort of my framework. And I was looking at the philosophy of history and seeing how certain ideas emerge, like just the way we think about ourselves or understand the past. And so I was actually living in Berlin on a research fellowship in philosophy and looking at like narratives about how we make sense of the past and think about historical truth. And I had also had a history of autoimmune disease growing up. So I had Mm -hmm. been a patient and really come up against the failings of our medical system. Mm -hmm. And it came from, I'm also a third generation physician. So I definitely had, like, I have a lot of people in my family that are doctors and think in this way. So I had this like valuation of medical science, but then really just saw what with chronic illness, how it personally broke down for me. And I didn't find answers and I had side effects to things and just felt like it was broken. So when I was in Berlin, I had also, I'll just go on a little bit of a tangent, but I had um, college, we had a shooting on my college campus. And this uh, woman in my small major that was like 20 of us was murdered. And yeah, yeah. Where was that? Wesleyan. Oh my God. Yeah. So I, like after that had happened, I remember just feeling this like sort of, like it felt like my world kind of broke down and we'd been on, like the campus was then on lockdown for a day. And there was this part where I was laying on the ground with a couple of my friends because we thought we heard like gunshots and someone coming back and we like thought that, you know, there was a shoot active shooter, but there, there, there wasn't and he had left, but he hadn't turned himself in. So just like having this kind of trauma that shook me up and it was okay. And it, like there was, our, this one woman was killed very sadly, but you know, everyone else was okay. And just sort of that shook me to my core. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then from there, I started looking at my ways of making sense of the world stopped making sense. And so I started to learn. Yeah. yeah about like alternative healing and reading about psychedelics and breath work and patient. And so, and like, once I started to go down that path and like witch, witchy stuff, <laughs> once I started to go down that trail, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much here. Like, this is amazing. And so I was living in Berlin doing this research fellowship in philosophy, but really feeling like that was not the thing for me. And then just like pulling on this thread about psychedelic research. And this was like 10 years ago, but even then I could see wow, this seems like the the evidence is slowly building. This seems like it's going to be a paradigm shift. And then doing like this personal healing work and really seeing changes around that. And then it just sort of like when I was in Germany, I was like, I think I need to go back to school and take the classes for medical school and become a doctor so I can do this work, Mm. which was accessible to me because I'm from a family of physicians. And it's so hard for people that don't have like those resources to make that change. So I feel very blessed that I was able to like, have this idea and, and go into medicine. It's a huge issue in medicine. But, like so many doctors are just children of physicians and there's like, really? Yeah. Yeah. They had a, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's a really hard thing just financially to yeah. do. Yeah. So it's, it kind of I'm continues kidding. the field, but I was able to do that. And so I made the switch and then ended up taking all the classes um, to go to medical school and like always with the idea in my mind of like someday. And I remember reading about ayahuasca and just knowing someday I will go to Peru and do this. And I want to learn from these people. And it was just this like crystal clear 
calling, I guess. Wow. You're such a witch. You just knew. (laughs) And like, you're literally, you're truly a visionary to see that this is the direction that the world is moving into. And although, I mean, like 10 years ago, I feel like you're giving yourself a lot more credit if you, then, then you might realize, or you're not giving yourself as much credit. Like this wasn't like what people were talking about as a way to talk about treating things like PTSD and not certainly not the way that we're talking about it now. I mean, weed was still, wasn't even legal 10 years ago. It's just wild to think about. So the fact that you had the foresight and truly like the vision to say, okay, I'm going to need to make these moves because medical school takes X, Y, Z amount of years in order to like make an impact in this community and in this space. That's wild. Thanks. Yeah. It it felt like this, like very wild leap of faith. I was really (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> meditation at that time and just like checking in and was like really am I going to do this because my my life was like lined up to maybe like do some graduate work in the humanities but it's like I'm going to do this I'm going to do this for psychedelics and a lot of people were like what are you talking about <laughs> Not well when you talk about it I feel like you have such a clear and like you said crystalline vision like there's just such clarity in your voice and and the way that you express it did you find that you had to keep that clarity to yourself throughout this journey or especially if you had parents that were more traditional in the medical fields? How did you navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely it was, um, especially around like once I started applying to medical school and taking the classes, I really quickly learned that I had to keep my mouth shut so that I would be like, be able to kind of climb those ranks and like get into medical school, graduate from medical school and not be called quote unquote crazy for having mm-hmm. these ideas. But luckily my, my family was really supportive. And my dad, even though he's a surgeon, like raised me to let my freak flag fly. And <laughs> like mantra. And I think that, yeah, there was some, this internal conviction that I felt like this, our, our system is so broken and mental health conditions are chronic conditions. And just we're so good at emergency care and allopathic Mm -hmm. sort of like looking at the body as a machine and breaking it down into its parts and understanding cause effect that works great if you have a broken arm or you need a transplant but when you're looking at like autoimmune disease or mental health or anything that people live with over time the system is failing yeah so it became so apparent to me especially studying sort of how ideas are politicized in history and how things are acceptable or not based on the context that this was happening in science Mm. and that there was so much sort of ideology in science about what was allowed to be real or not. Mm. And so I definitely had a lot of supportive friends or people who the medical system had failed for who were like, hell yeah, that makes a lot of sense to try to change it. But I definitely learned to keep my mouth shut and not, not question or like question internally, but not, not say things. Um, you know when to play your cards mm-hmm. uh, to show them. Yeah. Right. right. I think that in and of itself is a skill, like, yeah. and to have longevity, that's a type of endurance to be able to stick to your convictions and believe in yourself so fully and, and see that crystalline, have that crystalline vision while also kind of having to hide yourself, hide parts of yourself from the world in order to survive. Do you feel like 
I don't know, not that there's trauma there, but do, are you a little afraid to show up now that it's kind of time to show yeah. yourself? Yeah, totally. It's so interesting because I've been working on this in some of my personal work just very recently, just about, yeah, this fear of being seen and fear, like shame of visibility and like all the things that come up around that. And just recently I have been doing a lot of work on like breaking out of this idea, these like perfectionist ideals of like what I think I'm supposed to be for other people. So I think I've in, in medical school, you become an expert at jumping through hoops. There's an infinite number of exact hoops you have to clear to make it through. So now that I'm nearing the end and just have like one more year, I have to, to finish to be a psychiatrist officially. Yeah. It, 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 it is such a process to like allow myself to be seen and yeah you've I mean you've survived by not being seen or by flying under the radar so to have to flip that on its head and be like JK now you need to be right (laughs) totally present and like be available for people to look at you and and show and not just like the version that they the veneer that is acceptable but like the true you which is the reason you've been flying under the radar is so you could survive until this moment or you know get get to this moment that's such a different sort of it's a flip exactly exactly yeah and it, it's, uh, it's so uncomfortable to <laughs> all the emotions that are coming up and like wow this like does not feel safe like or or you know easy necessarily but it does feel energizing to start and VIR has been such a cool part of that already so like yeah well we see you thank you <laughs> <laughs> that means so much you said something about mental illness and what we call mental illness. The fact that we call it something that's, I don't know exactly what your terminology was that you used to describe, but it set off a little trigger in my head of, I'm just curious, is it possible that what we call mental illness now is just a way of being and we've, we've pathologized it and made it wrong. And I'd just be really curious to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the short answer, yes. And, and there's that quote, I forget um, who it's by, but the, it's something like there's, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. Yeah. yeah. Where, I mean, yeah, there's so much in your question. So I'll try to try to. Sorry. I didn't give you an easy one. <laughs> things to talk about, but yeah, like just from, um, a somewhat like concrete perspective, we are diagnostic categories in psychiatry are extremely messed up currently. So have you guys heard of the, the DSM, the Diag- yeah. Diagnostic yeah. Manual, which is like our big book of psychiatric diagnoses. And I was just actually reading stuff about how the reliability of our diagnoses has gotten worse over time. So there was like some study on comparing editions of the DSM. And basically what has happened is people, psychiatry has favored like broad and inclusive diagnoses, which capture a lot of people rather than being concrete and specific about things. So this does a few things for our field. And it's like our professional guilds that are leading this, which makes psychiatrists indispensable. Because if you have like a psychiatric diagnosis, then you have to see, you know, a a doctor and MD to to be able to treat it. And it enhances the sale of pharmaceuticals because then you can justify treating anyone. So the diagnostic for category 
for um, major depressive disorder, which is like what we call depression, there's you need five of nine criteria. So someone can have five symptoms and someone else, can, they can just share one symptom, but that could, for instance, be appetite. Someone could have a higher appetite or a lower appetite, and then they could look entirely different. Mm-hmm. And so basically there's this idea that it's internally inconsistent. Like we're not talking about uh, stable disease states and it's really kind of distorts what we're looking at. So people meet this criteria, but it doesn't really tell us anything. It doesn't tell us about a shared brain state. It doesn't tell us even how they're going to do over the course of time. Mm. Like someone could have a major depressive episode and get better after that, never be sick again, or they could, it could turn into a different like bipolar disorder, or it could be, you know, any number of issues. I've been reading a bunch of stuff just about how the DSM is not like really a helpful way of helping people understand their illness and get better. Yeah. It sounds like a linear way and we're not linear. Like just like grief isn't linear. Depression definitely isn't linear. Anxiety is not linear. PTSD we know is that's not the healing of that isn't linear. Right. And we're trying to like fit it into these boxes of like, okay, now you're better. Or exactly. like, this is, you're healed, right? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, you bring up PTSD. And so in the DSM, in the new edition that came out a few years ago, somewhat recently, DSM-5. So PTSD is relegated to one chapter. And so what that, it's like trauma and related disorder or something like that. So what that does is kind of make it seem like everything else is not trauma related. But as we learn more about adverse childhood experiences or early trauma, it really seems um, to me, at least looking at the research, that trauma is implicated in a lot of mental health conditions. Mm. So the idea is it sort of implies that these diagnoses are unrelated to trauma and that these symptoms are just emerging rather than considering like the social, psychological, the adversities of a particular person's life that have led to this disease state. They're still sort of what, what they would call a disease state, but like there's this idea that these states are like a biochemical imbalance rather than related to the particular person's life experience. Yeah. And then once you start to see it as um, an outgrowth of the trauma and adversity and like other things in a person's life that they've experienced, then it makes us as clinicians need to both be accountable to that whole person. And then also I think gives us a responsibility to start doing this to prevent that kind of stuff that we know leads to mental illness. Right. Which I mean, it sounds like that folds right into looking at things like systemic oppression. Yeah. If, if that's yeah. really, if like yeah. we're, we're trying to hold ourselves responsible for people's care and well-being, and we know mm-hmm. that systemic trauma, like what happens in systems that marginalize people leaves them traumatized, yeah. exactly. then it's our responsibility to make it better or try to. Exactly. Exactly. And it just in psychiatry. So what I did a lot of the time in residency was work in the psychiatric emergency room. So see people coming in in psychiatric crises and it so often it felt like just seeing the end result of this, this mm. awful system. So seeing people who like, for instance, lose their job and then lose their health insurance and then can't be on their medication anymore. So then decompensate and then mm. show up, not because you know they didn't, the doctor didn't know what to do or the patient didn't know what to do, but because they could no longer access it or anything. heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And just constantly like homelessness. Like how I've had a couple of therapy patients who have been pushed into homelessness this past year, two people I've been working really close with and just seeing like 
how limited the work, like even medications and therapy are, if this, these people don't have a roof over their heads or access to food, it just doesn't make any right. sense. And then yet we're yeah. hospitalizing people in the psychiatric hospital who come in for some of these issues for maybe a week max, which is a huge, huge waste of resources that you could use to be giving people housing or Mm. resources, or just people who are living under like a state of chronic stress because they're nervous that their kids are going to be shot in the street or like have lost jobs because they tested positive for cannabis that they were trying to use to medicate for like a headache because they didn't have reliable access to healthcare. So there's just like this like constant level of, yeah, just like societal problems that show up as psychiatric problems. And mm-hmm. then we take them into the hospital and we maybe put them on some pretty intense medications, but then we discharge them like to a shelter, quote unquote, and maybe they'll go stay in a shelter for like a night or two and then become homeless again. And it just seems like this vicious cycle where like something is broken and you're not we're just like dealing with the people falling off the cliff rather than like looking why, why do people keep falling off the cliff? Yeah. So how do psychedelics fit into that, into all of that for you? Yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting question. Cause I was just talking with somebody who does plant medicine work, um, who works in healthcare and was saying like, Oh, I wish all of our patients could have access to ayahuasca. She was saying, and I was thinking like, you know, that's not the first thought I have with my patients. Like I wish all <laughs> could be housed. And then right. yeah. <laughs> you're like, well, I feel like there's some other stuff that would be good. <laughs> right. That's a little jumping 10 steps ahead. <laughs> right. Right. And have access to, to different psychedelics. That would be a great combination probably. So, I mean, that's a really big question. So I, I kind of, I mean, I think there's, there's massive potential for psychedelics and healing trauma. So the, the first psychedelic, I'll try to weave this back to your answer or your question, Michelle, the first psychedelic that will probably be approved. And it's not a traditional psychedelic, but MDMA, which is sort of like a love MDMA. Uh-huh. Approve it, please. <laughs> we, we, approve. we approve. <laughs> yeah. It looks like it's going to be on track to be approved by 2023, which is really soon. Wow. That's wow. wild. Mm-hmm. And wow. But cool. I mean, like, Ethan and I do MDMA like twice a year and we tell, we see a couple therapists who we Mm -hmm. love and we told him, he's like, that's amazing. It was Mm -hmm. developed for couples therapy. Like, that's great. And we were like, wait, what? I thought you were going to yell at us, but okay. Right. Right. That's awesome that your therapist is supportive. Yeah. He's cool. Yeah. Super cool. And yeah, the, the history is sort of interesting in that it was used for couples therapy before it was scheduled and made illegal. And actually a bunch of therapists came together and tried to write a letter to counter the the scheduling. When something is schedule one, it says it has no potential for medical benefit. All these therapists came together and were like, no. Do you know why it got shifted to schedule one? Like what was the... Yeah, I'm not sure about MDMA in particular, but I know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the legacy of our drug war is a lot to do with criminalizing black people and criminalizing people that were anti-war but i'm not sure specifically why that was done for mdma i knew at some Mm. point but yeah Yeah, it's an interesting question but sort of part of this push i mean yeah i can speculate but i'm not sure i wonder if just criminalizing hallucinogenics in general yeah is like it's an umbrella and it's like a binary right like 
these are fine. These Anything like this is not fine because then we can just sort of flatten the nuance and mm-hmm. we don't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, there definitely are like forces that don't want us to be experiencing with consciousness, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the MDMA is going to be approved for PTSD or not approved for PTSD is in phase three trials to be approved for PTSD that seem to be going well based on preliminary data. And right now there's also this compassionate use exemption, which means that basically trials that are far along in phase three, people that aren't in the study, but that have treatment resistant PTSD can apply to get an exception and use that when there's no other. Wow. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's super cool. And sorry, you can just tell how much I like drugs. I'm like, that's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and <yeah. laughs> just thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> but it, it does raise interesting questions to bring it back to like mm. kind of your question, which I can't remember exactly what you asked, Michelle, but it was thought provoking or just like how does all that we were talking about before relate to mm-hmm. psychedelics? So that like, I mean, there are some issues. So for instance, with MDMA, some of the, the research they're doing is on combat veterans, which is, I mean, I don't think that those people need to live with trauma by, by no means. Like nobody should have to live with trauma, but is that like greasing the wheels of our war machine to like- mm, Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like to, yeah. Like I think that always like there needs to be a question of like, why is this trauma happening? And is there things that we can do to reduce like the systemic burden of trauma and like prevent it? And then also deal with the downstream effects. It's kind of a balance. Not that that should stop MDMA therapy. And they, they were really smart in the way that they designed the, tr- the trials because that's something that is hard to like politicize as something that hippies are doing if it's combat veterans that are benefiting or people that are survivors of sexual assault. Or- right. Yeah. Wow, yeah. there's so much politicking that goes into all mm-hmm. of this. I mean, I think that you're so smart and and also like how strategic that you, I, I think of how strategic you have been in your study and how you're sort of entering this space and it, you even pointing this out, like how they, how intelligent they had to be to study it in this way to make it hard to say no to. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Just how many hoops we have to jump through. Right. Yeah. And I mean, learning about all this stuff really shed light on for me how, like, I think I naively thought, okay, science is this operation where we, we look at everything and then we just decide what works from just like, you know, inquiry and then we figure it out. But like how it, that's not what is happening. And so the psychedelic research has actually been quite slow because in the beginning, it was all sort of crowdsourced, the money for this. So it's happening very, very, very slowly since the 90s, just kind of like crawling, even though they were finding good results, it wasn't like, okay that seems promising, let's fund it. And now we see the entry of corporate interests into psychedelic medicine. And now suddenly there's this huge explosion in research. And we were talking about corporate interests in psychedelics and mushrooms and psilocybin for one of our papers in the cusp recently. Mm-hmm. And and how we were talking, I think Kaylin, it was you and I who were talking on one of our meetings about how they're going to legalize it but you can only use psilocybin according to like Western medicine doctors and how like Western doctors approve of how you should be able to use psilocybin and how even that, like how problematic that is to ignore thousands of years of, of like culture and experience with this, with this medicine. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, and I, I mean, all love to my medical brothers and sisters, but <laughs> I don't think we're like the most equipped to be like doling that out necessarily, especially as you mentioned that people, there's this history of traditional use. It's not like this was just invented a moment ago. This is um, like the Mazatec people have been using mushrooms traditionally for a long time. And so, yeah, it, there, there's a really weird power dynamic that's happening and there's in like these corporate interests the companies that are there's one company in particular that kind of will likely be the first to have prescription psilocybin which will probably come a little bit after the mdma so maybe in the next uh, three or four years maybe a little we'll, we'll see what happens but they're in phase two trials right now for that is it a big pharma company like do we know who they are yeah so it's a, a company called compass that kind of befriended. So basically there's a nonprofit entity called Usona that is trying to make this an accessible treatment and is like giving it away for free for other researchers to, to do research on. And they're, they're an advocate of open science. So basically cool. there was this paper or I guess like statement that came out maybe um, three or so years ago when we started to have this entry of corporate interest into psychedelics that said, like, let's as a field commit to having open science, transparency, sharing our research. Because we're really drawing on traditional use. It's not like Western medicine. Yeah. Invented this. I stop it there and then like seal up the discoveries and then profit off of that. That's kind of messed up. Which is how how big pharma works, right? Is you develop a drug, you get a patent on that drug and how to use it. And then you make millions and billions of dollars off of it. Right. Mm -hmm there were these scientists calling for open science and a bunch of people signed on. So it was one developer of psilocybin as a treatment for major depression. It's what they're studying right now. Um, in the past, there's been research for existential anxiety in the context of life-threatening illness. So there's um, mm-hmm. that. And, but um, in addiction, there's some good research actually on alcohol and smoking. So you have this nonprofit entity that's trying to develop it um, and not limit access. And then you have this company called Compass that has these bad business practices and has befriended a bunch of psychedelic researchers and then kind of broke those ties and then changed actually from a nonprofit to a, a for-profit after they had like gotten a bunch of the insider intel. So really, really shady stuff. And then tried to, I, I put this in the Cusp article, but recently yeah. they tried to pa- patent hand-holding. So they, they applied for patents even like... yes. <laughs> good colors in a, you know, in a therapeutic environment, the like holding of hands during the psychedelic experience. So really patenting for a number of applications. And that's evil. Yeah. 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 It's like straight up evil. You can't just, there's no way for me to possibly justify that in my mind. Like that is straight up evil. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. And then, so (laughs) a lot of the research through them has not been like normal IP. It's like they own all the IP rather than the universities that are going. It's, it's kind of unusual, definitely like a money grab. And it looks like they could potentially be the first to develop. And they're even doing things. I was reading something recently about like the organ decriminalization efforts of um, starting to meddle in that and starting to like kind of exert pressure that, that it not be decriminalized because it's better for them if no one grows their own mushrooms, if no one goes to a treatment center and gets mushrooms. I think that's how it'll be in Oregon. Um, more more evil. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not good for their bottom line if people yeah. have access to or like are able to 
grow their own mushrooms without the risk of being put in jail. Man, it makes me so angry. <laughs> I know my blood pressure definitely just went up. <laughs> like, like we have to stop them. Everyone needs drugs. <laughs> no, but really like, um, it's, that's just like capitalism to its core. Like how can we commoditize healing and uh, again, making it about class and oppression and like not really about healing, make it about like making money. And no wonder people don't trust medicine and no wonder people don't trust like pharmaceuticals and no wonder now, like, thank God we're all vaccinated, but like, no wonder people have questions are questioning these companies because like, well, a lot of the time it seems like they do have malintent. It's really hard to make a decision about what's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's messed up. And I think we'll see. So I think the, the decriminalization movement in, that's happening kind of all over the country and a lot of places are having success pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting because that's both moving it out of um, the big pharma, but also out of like the doctor patient relationship. Not that there's not potentially some benefit. Like I think particularly when people have serious mental illness and you're assessing like suicidality and risk, I think it does make sense potentially to go to a psychiatrist because that's what we like learn about and can really, especially if people are on psych meds, which is a whole other issue of like, if you're on an SSRI, it might, you, you need to like taper that before doing ayahuasca, for instance, or mm. there's like a potential for interaction. So I think there's a role of doing this in the medical context and listening, step out of that entirely, but there, it opens up this whole question of do people need to be sick to benefit from these things? Or mm. is this something that people like for the betterment of well people is kind of how it's sometimes talked about and and also I can, I can go on and on about this, but it's just interesting because it's this idea that like communities don't know how to heal themselves. And I think that often it is in like a community that already has some cohesion that these, these things could be really interesting. Mm. Um, and it removes the use of these, you know, let's just say plants at the very basis from the entire community aspect and makes it so transactional. Right. And the transaction is just what we're used to. Like you were saying earlier with treating the, the emergency once we get to the end result and how much of that is just totally lost in the way that it's being used right now and commodified. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think Kaylin that they're, like you said right now, it's, treating people who are, who, who have been called mentally ill or who are dealing with some sort of diagnosis. But do you think that in the future, psychedelics are going to be something that is actually like the upkeep of our well-being, like exercising every day or meditating? It's stuff that you do to maintain, or even like, I don't know, I think that we all have maybe things that we're struggling with mental health wise. I know with someone, as someone who's had depression for a really long time, pretty much everything I do like hedges around managing depression, (laughs) you know, like how I treat myself and my, my, my care. So is it possible that that's what psychedelics will be for us in the future? Is that your, is that your vision? Yeah. So I I think that there is a role for these medicines or or plants outside of just the, the medical context. So I think that, I mean, I think your question has has multiple parts and, and one, one piece is like, could this be preventative? Um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think 
I mean, the, the research on microdosing is in its infancy. And so we really don't mm. know. I'm really curious to see what the findings on that are, because I do think that it's not. And also just to like zoom out a little bit more, it just doesn't make any sense to let things get so, so, so bad. And then you don't intervene until yeah. then. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so much of that has to do with our like for-profit health insurance system where we're treating diagnoses and not people. And often people mm-hmm. won't be reimbursed if you don't meet full criteria for something, then the insurance won't cover it. And it just, I mean, that's a whole other thing that I'm, I'm happy to talk about too. <laughs> I mean, so I wish we had, a, I wish we had seven hours to exactly. talk on this podcast exactly. about this because yeah. we could definitely go down that route, <laughs> <laughs> but there's another way called single affair, but yeah. So I think that there, as a maintenance treatment, like certainly I think that that's possible. And then, but I also think your question might be getting at, like, is this something that people who, who maybe don't even have a diagnosis of depression might do just to, to kind of feel better? Yeah. Or, or just like, I think all day long, we're just trying to cope with being in the world and being human, honestly. Right. And like, it's really hard because like, I don't know, there are things happening constantly that I don't know if you really sat with them, you'd be like, how the fuck are we letting this happen? Like what's happening in India right now? Mm -hmm. India doesn't have vaccines because they sold all their vaccines to other people because like the United States and we're hoarding vaccines right. and, yeah. and people are dying. Like, how can we even right. go? How can we go on? Right. We have to like shut off an aspect of ourselves, of our humanity in order to exist in the world and continue. And I yeah. think that so often we go to wellness and well being to unlock those parts of us that we've locked up in order to cope and move forward. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if, if that's something that psychedelics potentially will we'll be just some, another tool in our toolkit, you know, just like meditation or just like, yeah. you know, making an herbal tonic. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in an ideal world, they certainly would be. And I can just speak to ayahuasca, for instance, where like, I think that we're limiting ourselves so much as like, I was just presenting this week on ayahuasca for addiction and sort of some of the research in my, in my addiction clinic. And like, while that's really cool to think of it as like, oh, this sort of sacred plant medicine has been used traditionally for a number of purposes, like for community cohesion or for talking with supernatural forces or for diagnosing, like the medical is just one aspect of the potential of it to just say, oh, this is a potential addiction treatment rather than this is something that can help people, you know, get a little like better or grow in a, in a, different way. I think that when you try to fit these really interesting plants into these boxes and act like they're just like a way to, to treat something or to kind of quiet your symptoms or to make it so that you can go back to work. I think that we're short changing it and that there's, there's a huge potential. And I think like, Oh, I mean, again, a lot to say about this, but like, I think one of the most profound things is they can help us heal our disconnection from the natural world, from each other, from, like our environment, like uh, from the society that's so individualistic. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, to use them to kind of break that down. Cause I, I, I kind of feel like we're, we're over individualized and we have all this like autonomy quote unquote and choice and like, mm-hmm. rather than like thinking of ourselves as part of a social fabric and part of like, the planet and, and ecosystem. Yeah. Like interdependent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it reminds me of something that we just talked about in the cusp about <laughs> stay with me on this on acne neutral skincare and how like if we start embracing and beauty brands beauty brands have recently started embracing skincare and like skin that isn't perfect quote unquote perfect by eurocentric beauty standards and they've even like removed the term problem or normal skin from like I don't know, your lotion packaging, because they're like, all skin is normal. And like, when we start talking, if we start keep pulling at that thread in the beauty industry, then anti-aging is going to go away. Then like getting rid of pimples is going to go away. And guess what? The beauty industry won't exist because the beauty industry is built around sort of weaponizing our imperfections and telling Mm -hmm. us we need to make ourselves better. So we need to buy this cream and that potion and that mascara in order to be worthy. And I wonder if I mean, I feel like this is the same. It's like if we pull at that thread of individualism and being disconnected and not treating the whole, well, like medicine, the way that we practice now, just like kind of cease to exist. I mean, in some way, I don't know if that's catastrophic, but like I could see it happening. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it would be, yeah, not catastrophic in a lot of ways. It might be good (laughs) and have that crumble a little bit or like transform into something different for sure. Yeah. I, I had another thought about this, but I don't know that <laughs> it will strike me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also just like, I know we're at the, almost at the very end of our time, but mm-hmm. this is something maybe we can have you come back and talk on a little bit more at another point, but I'm really curious about like the witchy and magical and the strange and how often, and sort of like these things that we talk about, like intuition or talking to plants or hearing or seeing, I'm, I'm curious about the intersection of mental illness or what's called mental illness and the things that we often experience as spiritual. And I think that can be a really scary thing for people that are discovering spirituality in themselves or tapping into their intuition because they wonder like, well, am I quote unquote crazy? And like, um, how will I know if I've gone too far, if I've gone off the deep end, mm-hmm. if I'm, if I'm just making this up, do you have any like perspective on that yourself as someone who, who works with people who are mentally ill, but also you're, you're obviously so spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a big question and I love it. I know. A- Sorry. I gave it to you in the last no, five minutes no. of our call. No. <laughs> Great. Right. And this is going to be like, not exactly scientific, but I think, I mean, even in in literature and art, there's a lot of like kind of reflection on the genius and madness line. And I feel like Mm -hmm. it's something that's so easy to cross into. And I mean, it happens to people um, who don't have psychotic illness on psychedelics. You can kind of dip into that and have that experience of not, not full on what it feels like um, to have um, those more um, non-ordinary experiences of reality that just happen day to day but I kind of think of it as yes people can certainly like kind of break through too much like either by taking psychedelics in an unsupportive environment or like when they're not in a good mental place and then but I do and this is like just really like I guess my personal experience I don't this is not like a, a research thing but I know that some of my patients that are in that state who are in like a psychosis or mania, they do, they're able, they like some of my patients have talked about seeing energy or like, for instance, and even in my body, like they're like, I remember talking to this one patient who was like, oh, you're having a lot of pain in your left shoulder. 
okay. Um, like I, I, you know, I wasn't like grabbing it. Maybe I was standing a little tense and not to say, I'm not saying like psychotic people are psychic and we should just like, you know, well, I, I, like that or anything like that. But I also have had that experience and I've had several people really close to me end up in mental hospitals and like sort of seen this vision that they have and the things that they can see like in our world and articulate that I think is also a strength. And I think we pathologize that a lot. And these people who might've been elevated to some extent to like a seer role and venerated, um, we've made that as, you know, an undesirable state. And, and then also just another thing on that note is just, I think in psychiatry and, and depending on if you talk to people who are more analytically inclined, that their answer might be different, but by and large, we think that the content of a psychotic experience is meaningless, but it, there are some interesting people who are working with hearing voices and what that means for people. And, and even a group called Hearing Voices Network, which is kind of like a patient-led group that helps people, like, you know, people who think that these experiences might not be something to be pathologized, but it might be something that empowers them or helps them. And all sorts of, I've heard a lot of different narratives um, from people who live with voices and do find it to be not something that they just want to get rid of. Yeah. I'm really curious about that. It feels like really hard conversation to have, like just Mm -hmm. in general, because we don't really know. And we want to give people treatment and care when they need it. And also like, yeah, we don't necessarily want to pathologize something that doesn't need to be pathologized. But I've walked in downtown LA, which has a really large homeless population with a lot of people who would, who might, might be described as mentally ill. Some of the things that they say, I'm like, that guy's seeing shit that I just don't see. Like he's seeing something for sure that's real. And I just can't, I don't have the ability to access that. And that's so interesting. 100%. I have a bit of a superstition with people who I encounter on the street who are potentially mentally ill or homeless. I always listen to what they say as like a message from the universe that I need to hear. (laughs) I'm always like, hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I think about it later because <laughs> I, I just feel like they're clearly accessing a plane. For me, it feels like that we're just not on. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'm just not on that plane that they're on. So what information can I take from it? That's just my weird relationship to it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that perspective, Wallace. Yeah. And there, yeah, there's an interesting like anti-psychiatry, critical psychiatry movement that kind of, I mean, they, they say all sorts of things, not just this. Some people believe um, these kind of things, so that like, why are we pathologizing what could be like a quote unquote maybe not normal but a part of the human experience? So mm. Listen to people in that choir. Interesting. I don't know if I'm. I would call myself anti psychiatry. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Either. Yeah. I feel like I wouldn't do that, but <laughs> yeah, it is. It is interesting to like you said someone who might be called the sage or, you know, traditionally be a medicine person or healer or a seer like in the past and hold that archetype in the community. And I think again, like if you don't have community to hold you, then like that role, you can't really play that role anymore. And that's when, that's when it becomes problematic potentially. Right. Right. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is just that there's really interesting research working on early intervention and psychosis with community so mm-hmm. seeing that um potentially like, there's some in finland actually they're doing some treatment that involves like super early intervention and working through relationships and they can actually stop like psychotic illness from progressing when they start to wow um, wow 
work in that that way. Um, and there's some of that like theory is starting to come to the states and be implemented. But I think that there's such a exactly what you're saying, Michelle. Like if, if you have a community to hold that, um, it might be something that needs to be pathologized. Yeah. When you were in Berlin, did you did you find you were absorbing any other kind of perspectives on mental health that are just not as common in the West? That's a really interesting question. I think not so much just because I wasn't encountering the mental health system. Yeah. So much there. Yeah, I was more in the like philosophy mm-hmm. communities. Right. Well. Like Drinking coffee, wearing berets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that you've had such a like a breadth of experiences and like you've gotten to sort of hold life up and look up and examine it from all these different lenses. I think that's what makes you so good at what you do. And I'm excited for you to be a leader in psychiatry and psychedelics. Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, any last words? Anything else we should we should double click on before we we let you go and get on with the rest of your day? I mean, I have I I could talk at length about <laughs> any things. I don't know that I, have. I know. We're gonna have to come you back. Have you come back on the podcast? But you are teaching a class in the next couple of weeks on nutrition. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super. We, we didn't even get to tease. Can you tease a little bit yeah. of it now? Yeah. Tease it yeah. for us. Yeah, so even over the past, like almost since I graduated from medical school, basically, which was just a few years ago, there's been really interesting research on nutrition and mental health. And there's, I mean, there's so many directions for this, like living up the gut brain connection or the microbiome. But really the research that's been happening, we've been known for a long time that certain diets or nutritional deficiencies were correlated with mental health symptoms. But then more recently, there's been research that has shown that even a brief dietary intervention. So in, in young adults, which was like 17 to 35, I think doing a three week intervention of just changing the diet, not in like any sort of crazy way, not focused towards weight loss, but just focusing on more nutritional foods, you could um, see improvements in both depression and anxiety, but doing like a, a study where they're actually doing the intervention and starting to show that 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 intervention works rather than it's just a a correlation. So I think that's amazing. And there's just so much cool research on the the microbiome. And one of the ways that we can influence that is um, by what we eat. And so that's super cool. So just, there's so much that, and also, so when your neurotransmitter pathways run, so like to make serotonin, you need the building blocks in your brain, but also to make those pathways run you need vitamins like vitamin C or zinc and just a bunch of nutritional stuff. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's so undervalued, but there's even some new research that shows that when you change what you're eating, like even if you're on an antidepressant, that might work a little better and you need, you're, you know, feeling a bit anxious and you're just trying to figure out what can I do before calling a psychiatrist? Like I'm not quite at that point. There's so much that we can do with food. So what can I do if I'm having an anxious day? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Kaylin, I'm going to ask you on the pod for all of us having an anxious day, what can we do? Sure. So to be clear, this is not medical advice. Wallace, I'm not <laughs> right. Sure. right. <laughs> yes, okay. It's okay. <laughs> but I'm wondering, so the first things I would consider, are, are you drinking caffeine? Not today. Or, okay. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me how many people come in with anxiety, but are like, 
oh yeah, I just had a nice cough. <laughs> They're like, I'm literally on a stimulant. Like I'm basically yeah. on meth right now. So maybe yeah. that's why I have anxiety. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I do that to myself all the time. I'm like, oh, oh I'm yeah. so tired of drinking my caffeine, but then I feel anxious. You know, it's hard to break that cycle. It's a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And then I might, you know, see if, are you eating regularly? Could you be having blood sugar crashes that are making you feel anxious? Mm-hmm. The blood sugar can kind of crash that. And then emphasizing like what they did in these research studies were they, they called it a Mahdi med diet, which is um, like mm-hmm. modified Mediterranean, but just um, yeah, eating Mahdi like med. fruits pizza. and vegetables. Yeah, pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Some All pizza. bizarre. Exactly, exactly. More pizza. <laughs> Some, some people are really sensitive to gluten or casein, so like cheese or, or bread, depending. So potentially just noticing if if that might be the case. So I'm, right now, and I'm going to run this again, I'm doing a like 21-day um, sort of clean up your diet challenge of like finding mm-hmm. ways to just temporarily change our eating patterns and then see how you feel and what works. But I think eating whole foods and then eating high-quality protein sources, fats, like, I don't, do you eat fish? I do, yeah. So like omega-3s, there's a lot of evidence in for mental health benefits. So yeah. I'm so excited for your class. Sorry to put you on the spot. I was, <laughs> no. I was just like, hmm. I love the questions. Yeah, because there's so much. Yeah. Like, it's such a building block that if we want to, mm-hmm. like if we're going to go to the psychiatrist and like start a medication, we also want to make sure that, or like at least for my patients, I want to make sure that they're also doing like the, the basics, like nurturing. Yeah. right their mental health so that they can have the neurotransmitters and then there's like a huge connection between the gut and microbiome it's just mind-blowing like doing fecal transplants like transplanting oh yeah Hot. like people with autism I was just at a child psychiatry conference in the fall and they were presenting new research where kids with autism were having a transplant of a kid with not with autism with of their like gut microbiota and seeing really really good results so just wondering like even though like that, could the microbiome and the bacteria that live inside of us be implicated? And so diet is like the best way to, or a huge way to change that, barring a fecal transplant. But <laughs> That's so cool. And I'm so glad you're teaching this class because it's really like, I don't know if I want to use the word fraught, but it's, it can be really challenging given how many people have disordered eating or a history of eating yeah. disorders. And just like the internet, research or like internet experts that are talking about nutrition or talking about dietetics. And I love that you are like so capable of holding this, holding that space and that being able to have that conversation because it's something that makes me really like as someone who had disordered eating in the past, it makes me very like, I just, I don't want to perpetuate diet culture, but I know. I I totally. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, I know that like I, started to undo some of my autoimmune stuff by diet changes. But then in that process, like went down the path of orthorexia myself and became when I was diagnosed with epilepsy, the ketogenic diet was developed for people, for children with epilepsy in the 1920s. So that was something that I I ended up going back to nutrition school to like study that because no doctor ever told me, by the way, you could probably stop having seizures if you stopped eating carbs. They just were like, you're on medication for the rest of your life. Oh, you have brain damage and you can't remember like where you live. 
sorry, you're just going to have to deal with that. And yeah, it it took me down this other sort of like obsession path of like being afraid. And now I I think I'm a little bit better, but I was going through like a bluesy state a little, a a few months ago. And I did one of these nutrition, I did a nutrition moment Mm -hmm. and for 30 days, 21 days, Mm -hmm. dude, I felt amazing. I felt like all my anxiety. Yeah. All my depression stuff. Like it was gone and it was so simple. It was almost annoying. It's like, Oh, all I have to do is like not eat sugar. This is so annoying. (laughs) I wish this didn't work, but it does. Yeah. Exactly. And I've, I've been loving hearing little bits and pieces about your coffee journey, Michelle, because I'm on a very, <laughs> but it's real. I know it's so annoying. I feel like, so hard. Ah, I feel like such an LA person being like, I'm too sensitive for coffee, but it really does make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. My partner this week was like, Kaylin, like you are a different person. You're so much more anxious when you're, you're drinking coffee. Like, no, like no more coffee. <laughs> now I think I'm even too sensitive for matcha which is supposed to be like not you know but I think the caffeine like it's still got high amounts of caffeine yeah yeah exactly I'm right there with you I had my matcha this morning I was like having yeah (laughs) but I love it I love the ride I love the drama. So yeah, Michelle, and I'm, I'm in such a learning process. So I'm sure I'll like mess up and, you know, learn more about this and like, how do you do it in a way that is not like an eating disorder or uh, orthorexia kind of thinking. And it's so, so I'm trying to like do my work from just a place of loving food. Cause I also love to eat. We love to cook here and trying to emphasize those parts while also giving people tools to, to make their own decisions. So it's not like about a single right diet. And like the thing that I always come back to is that like even a glass of wine, especially if it's like a beautiful natural wine can be the most therapeutic thing in the world, even if, yeah, it does cause anxiety later, but you know, with like the right friends or, you know, in the right moment or like even a, you know, French fries or something can, yeah. can, if it's like, it doesn't have to be this only like looking at it from the biochemical way, like food serves a social. Function. Yes. Absolutely. That's exactly it. It's not just biochemical. I actually had my first glass of wine in a year. Well, not in a year since 2021 with the team this week, I had a little glass of sexy red wine. And I was like, I, f- I love wine. I feel amazing. This is so yeah. fun. Yeah. And it was great. And I didn't feel bad the next day. I was like, cool. Okay, great. I don't know the next time I'm going to drink, but that was delightful. Right. Right. Exactly. So moving out of the like binary, there is this like right healthy way to eat. And I'm going to be like, I'm bad. And I'm feel shame if I don't adhere to it hundred percent. It's like about how you feel in the moment and like right. what you want and what feels good. Like the cascade of chemicals that I feel like come with shaming yourself and the negative talk. I'm curious about that because you can, you, you can feel it course through your body when you're in like a spiral of binary thinking about food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And shame is so powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It it can have this hold over us. I think kind of just trying to, and I don't, I mean, how to break out of shame is like a big question for to do it in my own life. Yeah. But I mean, shame feels like a tool of patriarchy because I just think about 
all how distracted I was my whole life by shame, by being ashamed of myself or my body or my choices and how that kept me from being, you know, like making and doing and like actually questioning, like, why do I, why do I feel fucking ashamed about this thing? Like, and that kept me small. And so, yeah. Yeah. And distracted. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh, I like that. I think that. (sighs) for sure I <laughs> <laughs> oh Kaylin it was so good to have you on the podcast we're gonna have you back and you're a v- you're a mm-hmm. VIR for the next for the whole all of 2021 and your holisticism team for life now we've accepted you you're one of us I so yeah thanks for making the time for us we know you're so busy but how can people find you and support your work and and connect with you other than our workshop okay the newsletter is so good oh, yeah. sorry, i just had to plug that <laughs> thanks wallace I'm, yeah so i've been writing a newsletter just for like a couple of months that you can sign up to sign up for on my website which is visionarymedicine.co and you can also follow me on instagram which i'm starting to to post a little more planning to post a little more at kaylin flynn md or at visionary medicine those are baby accounts but hoping to grow (laughs) they are start somewhere it's true exactly Oh, Kaylin, we're so lucky to have you. You truly are a visionary and I just love your wealth of knowledge and your heart. And I'm just so happy that there's someone like you doing the work that you're doing. And I'm really grateful that you are, that you, you keep on keeping on. So thank you. And thanks for tuning in with us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I could say the same things right back at you. Thanks guys. (laughs) 